Good morning. morning. Wonderful to see you all here on this beautiful spring morning. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2. Pastor continuing his study on revival in the adult class, and you'll make a note there, coming studies in the confession. Evening study tonight at 6. Bring finger foods. Choir rehearsal tonight at 5. Is that going to happen, Jared? I don't think so. No, no, no choir rehearsal tonight. Um, men's Bible study Tuesday, 10 a.m. at the McLeods. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. See the note there on the baptismal heater. And uh, also, you saw the insert in the uh, bulletin. It was in there for everybody, wasn't it? The, the um, directory insert. Okay, it was there. So fill that out and drop that in the in the offering box. Okay, George is uh, helping us be in charge of that, I guess. So to George or in the offering box, either one is fine. And if you want to help with the flowers for Joel's funeral, see that. All right, what have I forgotten or missed? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. She she actually did. Thank you for the reminder. She said that uh, there's a list on the helps board <clears throat> regarding items needed for um, the auction. So they're going to do a they're going to do a gift basket for the auction, uh, and you can see the list of items needed, and that will that's on the helps board and then out in the foyer. So thank you, Sheila. Um, our scripture for meditation this morning is a responsive reading, and that's 806 in Trinity. Psalm 62, 806 in Trinity. Stand with me, please. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I am How long will you assault a man? They fully intend to topple him from his lofty place. They take delight in lies. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress and I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. 
Low-born men are but a breath, the high-born are but a lie. If weighed on the balance, they are nothing, together they are only a breath. Do not trust in exhortation or take pride in stolen goods. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard, that you, O God, are strong, and that you, O Lord, are loving. Surely you will reward each person according to what he has done. Ask that God would bless his word. Ed, would you open it for us this morning in prayer? Please take your red hymnal, 76, please. 76 in the red. Jesus. 
hymn from the congregation this morning with a reason as to why you've chosen it. Andrew. The Battle Hymn of the Republic. <laughs> Is there a reason you chose the hymn for us this morning, Andrew? Okay, 569. You like it, okay? That's good. 569 in the brown. Yeah, go ahead and stay it up. <laughs> Scripture reading is 1 John 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Thanks, 
1 John 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it does not, did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we will know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he has appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. May God bless his word this day. Five hundred and no, sorry, three hundred and fifty-eight, three five eight in the brown. Lord, 
Our scripture text is 1 John chapter 3, as we begin this chapter. When last we were in our study of little John, we consider John's call to steadfast taken from 1 John 2, verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. There's a fixed day in the mind of God, unshared with his people, in which Christ Jesus, his Son, will return from glory to receive his bride, the church, to be with him forever. Because we're not told the day or the hour, we are to remain on guard, that is, ready, alert, alert to the fact that a surprise appearing from the Lord is imminent. John says we are living in the last hour, chapter 2, verse 18, the last hour of the last days. Now what happens is that delay causes the world to mock and to become complacent and to fall asleep. But God's people stand ready, stand waiting, looking to the heavens for the glorious appearing of the one who is to come as King of kings and Lord of lords. We're not to be caught off guard, even though the rest of the world will be caught off guard. And we learned of two pit bulls to keep us remaining steadfast. Number one, we're to be confident. Now, not self-confident, but remaining, verse 24, chapter 2, in what we've been taught from the scriptures and what the Spirit's anointing has shown us in these studies, verse 27. In other words, no need to keep reinventing the wheel just because the world thinks that truth changes with time. No, truth is truth. It's always absolute. And the things that we see changing have not to do with technology. We move on. Though There are changes in our world. 
but not with regard to truth. The second pit bull, be unashamed of Christ. Why would we be ashamed of Christ in a world that's full of lies and deception and immorality and wickedness? We ought to be proud of Christ and proud that we're part of his family. It's a different scenario altogether. Well, in today's study, John builds our confidence in Christ by giving us us assurances that we are the children of God now. Now. So let's pray as we begin and ask for the Lord's intervention. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit of instruction upon us that we might learn from what the Apostle John is saying here in these texts. We thank you, Lord, for the scriptures that do not change. They don't change because you are the same The scripture says today, yesterday, and forever. It is the unchanging nature of God, which is solidity. It is what the foundation is that holds our feet to the rock and keeps us from being wishy-washy with every wind of doctrine that comes down the pike. Oh, running to this. Oh, no, running to that. Lord, you keep us solidly fixed upon Jesus. And we pray your blessing upon our study of your word. And as John, the last living apostle, wrote these words, it was meant to be an encouragement to your people. Please, Lord, be that encouragement to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text today is 1 John chapter 3, and we're looking at the subject, being the children of God now. First thing to bear in mind is that we are born of God. Chapter 2 Verse 28 says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Born of him. Conception and birth, even in the natural realm, are very amazing things. A woman ovulates once a month, usually releasing one egg into the fallopian tube, leading from the ovaries to the uterus, and its journey is destined for fertilization by the male sperm, which exists by the millions, yet only one sperm will be permitted to access that egg, and only if it's the first one to get there. From that point on, all other sperm are sealed off as the egg begins to divide, and then divide again, and then divide some more, in rapid succession on the road to becoming an actual replication of the male and female partners whose unique DNA combine to produce a child having some of each of the parent's characteristics. And yet, yet, in the end, has its own unique DNA which sets him or her apart from all other human beings. Just think about that. It's absolutely stupendous. And the more scientists learn about the conception and birthing process, the more amazed we become with the whole activity of reproducing children in our own likeness. In similar fashion, John speaks of people whom he calls the children of God. Chapter 3, verse 1. And for that to have Uh, become a reality he says in chapter 2 verse 29 that people must be 
born of him, which is the equivalent of being born of God. Now, when we read something like that, there is nothing here of human sexuality. Though some religions, Mormons for one, have thought of Jesus, for example, as the Son of God, only in the sense, this is terrible, but this is what they teach, only in the sense that God the Father allegedly came to Mary sexually, and the end product was Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, with a little s, Son of God, but only in the sense that he was the human offspring of Mary cohabiting with God the Father to produce a, not the, a son of God. This accounts for the Mormon emphasis on polygamy because a woman's place in Mormon theology, her place is in the celestial afterlife to produce enough children to populate all the planets. Now when I read their theology, I think only a godless and lustful man would think up a religion like this. Got an article here from a Mormon wife that was involved in a polygamous marriage. It was in the newspaper. As, a, as the 13th of 31 children born to a fundamentalist Mormon family, Irene knew the heartbreak that came with being one of many wives. Her own mother, a second wife, left Kunz's father and chose monogamy before Irene was a teenager. Kunz knew the poverty that often resulted when a man tried to support many households and dozens of children. She knew all about the secrecy that was necessary because of the illegality of plural marriage. She was fully aware of the jealousy and the anger harbored by some wives in these polygamous unions. So why then did 16-year-old Kunz eschew a man that she loved in favor of life in a dirt house in Mexico as the second wife of a man she barely knew? She had been taught and believed that it was the only way to celestial glory. By supporting her husband, her sister wives, and their many children, she would become a goddess. But for a lively woman who loved music and being another of what would eventually become ten wives, it was a crushing existence. You say, well, I don't think Mormonism practices that today. Grow up. <laughs> Most certainly they do. In our country, it certainly is more acceptable with all the liberalism of our day. But Joseph Smith and Brigham Young thought up this religion. And like I said, only a sinful man, lustful men, would think up a religion like this where they could have multiple wives and keep them under their thumb all their lives. Now John's use of the phrase, born of him, chapter 2, verse 29, children of God, chapter 3, verse 1, 
have nothing whatsoever to do with biological reproduction. The truth John is conveying simply borrows from man's knowledge of family and it reads spiritual content into it. People begin physical life as babies that are born. Well, God's people begin spiritual life by being born into that life. Couples have babies which are identified as their children. And God has babes in him, Matthew 11 verse 25, in terms of their knowledge of him whom he nonetheless owns as his children. Children of God, babes of God. Babes born into his family through a new life. Life evidence of the characteristics of God, hence God life. The Greek word is zoe, the God life that God gives. So, children of God indicates ownership by God. And it identifies those whom God considers to be his family. You know, sometimes at a family reunion, people who have not seen each other for a long time, they might say, those, those kids, uh, who's, who's are those kids that are dressed, you know, in the white tops and the blue shorts? Oh, uh, they are my children, Sally. Now, immediately, Sally is able to distinguish these children as belonging to the family of her friend, Sarah Matthews. And they are Matthew's children because they were produced by Sarah and her husband Frank and they bear the marks of resemblance in physique and mannerisms. Of all the children there at the reunion, the three dressed in white tops and blue shorts are the Matthew's children and no one else. You ask, well, what about adoption? Doesn't the Bible speak of believers as being adopted by God? The answer is yes, most definitely. Ephesians 1 verse 5, the classic text, He, that is God, predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And now we're getting confused. Which is it? Why does the Bible mix the terms? Born of God, adopted by God. And that is because no one human term or concept conveys all that God wants us to know about our relationship with him. We're working with human language here, so it falls short of what God wants to convey. Birth or being born of God indicates new life and life that is characterized by the very nature of God himself. The parent contributes to the nature of or the character traits of the child. Adoption emphasizes the absolute grace of God and his selective choice of the will of his will to be, uh, bring children into his family. We have this in Ephesians 1.4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, birth, get me now, birth doesn't convey to us grace, nor does it convey to us choice. 
what adoption does. Because not all available children are adopted by the same couple. No, they choose whom they wish to adopt and they make a part, uh, uh, that person a part of their family. So what does God want us to know? Well, he wants us to know that we were born into his family and so we possess his nature, the ability to think and act righteously. Same in chapter 2, verse 29. Further, God wants us to know that we were adopted into his family. And so our relationship with God as our father and with Jesus as our brother is on purpose. It's intentional. It's a matter of God's elective choice. God wants us to know that we are the children of God and belong to his family as distinct from all other families. And he wants us to know that he claims us and not just us claiming him. Sometimes it's going to take more than just one illustration to bring out the truths of Scripture. By the way, you have an example of this in the Old Testament. You know, on the Day of Atonement, the priest would sacrifice a particular goat or sheep, and that blood would be spilled and so forth. But then there was a second goat or sheep upon which the priest would confess the sins of all of his people, and they would turn that goat or sleep, a sheep loose into the wilderness, and off it would go. You say, well, wait a minute. Why, what, what, what's with the two? Well, you know, a dead goat or sheep that's been sacrificed and put on the altar cannot in, indicate or picture the walking away of our sin, the, our sins being taken into the desert wilderness to, to bug us no more. So they had two goats. One goat, redemption. The other goat, emancipation from our sins. And that's what you got going on here. One term or one concept is not good enough. Birth, born of God, you get his nature. Adopted by God means he chose you. He had his eye on you from all of eternity. Secondly, verse 1, the children of God are the loved of God, verse 1, he calls it great love, and lavished love of the Father. It's true that God has a general love or concern for all of humanity, which is demonstrated in his watch care and provision for people, regardless of their relationship to him. For example, instructing his disciples on the subject of love, he said, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Well, why? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Well, how so? He causes his Son, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, verse 44 and following. So Jesus was teaching that God the Father does not just dispense his love to his friends and to his children, but also to those he counts as unrighteous, those he counts as enemies, as evil people. The world will shrivel up and die in a season if God did not sustain the population with sun and rain to produce edible crops. 
It's the same demonstration of love which Paul told the Roman believers, if your enemy is hungry, then feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, verse 20 and following. But John speaks in our text of another kind of love God the Father demonstrates. Great love, yes, verse 1. Lavished love, verse 1. Lavished on us by calling us his children. A calling which so separates us from the rest of the world that the world does not know us, verse 1, the latter part, even as it did not know God. This is that elective love of adoption that I spoke of uh, a moment ago. But it's responsible for why we're in the family of God. It is also that born-again, born-above love of which Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, saying, No one can see the kingdom of God unless he or she is born again. Literally, John 3, verse 3 in the Greek, born from above, meaning that a birth that comes from God, from heaven, is so radical, it is so unique, that it sets a person apart from all other humanity, even from his or herself. He came to that which was his own, the Jewish people, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent. When we think of natural descent, we think of great-great-grandparents, and then there's the great-grandparent, and then there's the grandparent, and then there's the parent, and right down to the child, a natural line of procreation. But John says, no, that's not how you got into the family of God. Not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God, John 1, verse 12. A spiritual birth which God alone produces and conveys to those to whom he gave the right to become the children of God. God does it. People believe it and God's family grows. But how do we know that people truly believe in the name of Christ? We know the word name and it talks about the name of Christ. It stands for his person. It stands for his work. It stands for his authority. Someone comes up, knocks on your door. You listen. Who's there? Open up in the name of the law. That comes from the other side of the door. It's a sheriff's offer officer who represents Sheriff McKenna, the county sheriff, the judicial court of the state of Michigan. And it would be folly to ignore the officer or worse, to treat him with disdain. Now that tin badge doesn't scare me. Why don't you take a hike? Try that one. That wouldn't work. Well, Christ, the Prince of God and heir apparent to the Father's throne, has all authority behind him. To those who believe and submit to his authority, 
God gives the right to become the children of God. But might there be those who are charlatans, who are fakers, who are phonies, those who simply claim to be the children of God, but in whom the reality is missing. Jesus had a personal confrontation with this group in John chapter 8. Though the conversation started out rather mildly, to the Jews who had believed in him, they, they said they believed in him, who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Gospel of John chapter 8. See, they claimed to believe in Christ. So Jesus took them at their word and he exhorted them, Okay, all who are really my disciples will hold to my teaching, and my teaching is truth, and that truth will set you free. Well, boy, that opened a hornet's nest. Stirred everything up. They got on their back and they responded, We are Abraham's children and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. I know you are Abraham's descendants, now he begins to pick here between two Greek words. It's important. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. The Greek word is sperma, sperm, the seed, the physical offspring of Abraham. I know that about you. Yet you are trying to kill me because you have no room for my word or teaching in your hearts. If you were Abraham's children, techna, another Greek word, different Greek word, that is, if you were of Abraham's nature, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you're determined to kill me, a man who's told you the truth. I heard these things from God. Abraham did not do such things. You're doing the things your own father does. That is the nature of their father that has been conveyed to them. And they answered, the only father we have is God himself. And Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. I liken this, brethren, to the many people of our day who claim to know God. Or they claim to be followers of Jesus because they were raised in a Christian home or they were brought up in the church. They know the Bible stories. They know the answers to the Sunday school teacher's questions. They can comment on the sermons that were preached. They can recite memorized Bible verses. 
their parents were Christians, maybe their grandparents too, they could say like these Jews, we are Abraham's descendants. Or in the vernacular of our day, my grandma and grandpa were God-fearing people. Or my mom and dad know and love the Lord. Yes, but Jesus comes to them and he says, if you truly are my disciples, you will hold to my teaching. But what do I discover? I discover that you have no room in your heart for my word. I discover that although I tell you nothing but the truth that will set you free from your sin, all you ever do is deny that you are the problem. You refuse to see the slavery of your own sin. You blame the world around you. You blame your parents, your teachers, your ancestry, society. You constantly justify your own conduct and blame everyone else for your rotten behavior. I discover no love for me in your heart at all. I discover that you do not understand one word I say. I discover a deep-seated hatred for God, which can only be the work of the devil in your life. I discover, says Jesus, that while you claim to be God's and have him as your father, you are really a child of the devil and would kill me out of your life if you had the opportunity to do so. This your parents and your grandparents would never do. Brethren, the Bible says the Lord knows those who are his. In other words, he's not fooled by idle claims and God talk. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Flee the evil desires of youth. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. 2 Timothy 2, verse 19 and following. The children of God are those upon whom God himself has lavished great love, which transforms people from devils to saints, from slaves to sin to obedient students of Jesus Christ. And that's what John is saying to his hearers as he writes this letter. You are loved by God. You're the children of God. At the same time, if this is possible, it makes us misfits of the world. Look at verse 1, the latter part of the verse. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Hmm. Let me read that again. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Referring to Christ. Have you ever felt like um, a round peg trying to fit into a square hole? <laughs> I mean, you just don't fit. Or the expression we use is, I don't fit in anymore generally we do not mean we do not mean that we're out of touch with what is going on in society or in politics or in science or in philosophy or in the everyday mores of life christian people take time to be informed we do read the newspaper we do listen to the news on tv we follow the political posturing in washington we know what Hollywood is producing in terms of films. 
we're not out of touch with the world, but rather we're out of sync with the world. The teeth in our gears do not mesh with the main mainstream movement of modern thought and actions. We're not out in left field. We are opposed to left field. We stand for God. We stand with God against all the godlessness of our culture. We don't buy into the American dream of money at all costs. We don't buy into the American dream of me, myself, and I, and to hell with you. We don't buy into the idea of gratifying our lusts, our greed, our pride at the expense of our own souls and that of our family. See, our God is the Christ of the new covenant. The pure and righteous one who came from heaven with a word from God on his tongue, the heart of God in his chest, and the righteousness of God in his mind and thoughts. It's a fascinating study, however, a very discouraging study, to see how often Jesus' interaction with the people of the world resulted in them not knowing who he was. More importantly, not caring to know who he was. The fault did not lie with Jesus. He told people his identity and the sources for his wisdom and his teaching. We just read from John 8, Jesus' confrontation with the Jews who claimed to believe in him. I came from God and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? John 8, verse 42 and 43. Earlier in the same chapter, Jesus explained, I know where I came from and where I am going, but you have no idea where I came from and where I am going. You judge by human standards. But I am not alone. I stand with the Father. You do not know me or my Father. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. All this is pretty clear, isn't it? I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. John 8, verse 14 and following. You know what they said? Verse 25. Who are you? <laughs> Who are you? He's just explained this, who he was, where he came from. And they say, who are you? Again in John 7, Jesus said, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. And if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. The context shows this one, the one who speaks on his own seeks his own honor, but the one who works for God's honor speaks the truth. John 6, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I have told you, you have seen me and still 
you do not believe. John 6, verse 32 and following. Now these texts, and many more that could be cited, demonstrate that Jesus was forthright in his dealings with the people concerning his identity. Again and again, he called God, the Jews' understanding would be Jehovah of the Old Testament, he called God his Father. Wow. He repeatedly taught that God had sent him from heaven, that he himself was not of this world, that his teaching was that of God and not his own. Now all of this points to Jesus' claim to be what? The Son of God. How remarkable then is the outcome. John 7 verse 28, Yes, you know me and know where I came from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Or John 8 verse 19. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And then in verse 54 of that same chapter, my father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. Now you should understand here that this ignorance of Jesus as God's son and this ignorance of the Father as his, uh, as his Father is a willful ignorance. It's willful. It has to be because Jesus made it crystal clear who he was and who had sent him into the world. He identified his Father as the one whom the Jews called their God. Now why would people intentionally disbelieve Jesus' testimony. In John 15, verse 20 and following, Jesus warned his disciples that they were in for some very hard times from the world. And then he gave this explanation. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. He who hates me hates my father as well. They have seen these miracles and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in the law. They hated me without reason. So what can we say about this ignorance? We can say this. It's intentional. It's intentional ignorance. It's intentional disbelief of the claims of Christ. And they have nothing to do with ambiguity on Jesus' part. Oh, he just wasn't clear enough as to what he was saying. But it has everything to do with a deep-seated resentment and hatred towards a holy God and the righteousness of his teaching. The teaching of Jesus, then, we should learn, accompanied by miracles, even so, will not melt the hearts of stone. Not in our day either. Let me say it again. The teachings of Jesus, even if it were accompanied by miracles, 
would not change people's opinions. Their minds are made up. They know what they know. And one thing the world doesn't know is us, verse 1, and that is symptomatic of not knowing God. So we are misfits of the world. They didn't know Christ. They don't know Christ's followers either. So then that brings us to the point that we are children of God by God's own declaration. Let me say that again. We are children of God by God's own declaration. I cannot count the times in my life when someone of the world has criticized my faith by accusing me of arrogance and pride because I affirm that I am a child of God. Even our Arminian brethren are appalled at the idea that a person can know with certainty that they are saved and belong to the family of God. But our assurance, brethren, is not self-generated. No, we have God's word on it. Two times in this text, by the way, verse 1, says that God has lavished his love on us by calling us the children of God. And that is what we are. This is the Apostle John writing the testimony of God concerning his people. And he says that it is God who calls us his children, and that is what we are. End of discussion. So, well, you shouldn't say yourself a child of God. Well, I'm not saying that, except that I'm just repeating what God has said. Now, just because the world doesn't know who we are is no reason for us to deny our relationship with God the Father as members of his family. You see, it's the same problem Jesus faced, isn't it? They didn't know who he was. They chose not to believe him. They chose not to believe us. Yet Jesus did not back down, but affirmed. Though you do not know him, I know him. And if I said I did not know him, I would be a liar like you, says Jesus. But I do know him. And I keep his word, John 8, verse 58. And the second declaration in our text is verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God. Observe the word now. It's an affirmation of the present reality. Now we are the children of God. Now, not later. Now, not after we die. Now, not in the resurrection to come. This lays to rest the notion of the people of the world when they say, well, you know, no one can know for sure if they will enter heaven. The best we can do is to wish it to be so. Well, that's just plain nonsense. God takes ownership of us now. We're called upon to believe that our salvation is not process. It's a done deal. It's a reality. And it's not based on how blue you feel today or how elated you will feel tomorrow. It is not based on whether you have the support of your pagan's neighbor's opinion. What do they know? They don't know us, and they don't know God. But you're going to get all upset because of their opinion? 
But the Lord knows those who are his because he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. And he predestined our adoption into his family by grace through faith, which he himself gives to us. And it is that grace that draws us irresistibly to believe in the Jesus that the world rejects and maligns. We with Paul, then, are not ashamed because we know whom we have believed and are convinced that he's able to guard that that we have entrusted to him for that day. What's that? Our very souls. 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. So, the epistle of 1 John has been rightly called the epistle of assurance. It's written to believers to say, you should know some things about yourself right now. Salvation is in process. It is not process. You're not becoming saved da -da 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 -da, through the years. You are saved right now. You're not becoming the children of God as you do this, do that, and so forth. You're not moving up the ladder closer and closer towards becoming part of the celestial city. No, you're that right now. You're a child of God. And Jesus gets all the glory, not you. Not you. Our Father, we thank you for your word and praise you for it. We ask your blessing upon our souls that are groggy and tired and weary. In the world, they don't know us. They didn't know you either. They didn't know your spiritual connection to God the Father, and they don't know our spiritual connection to you as our spiritual brother and to God, whom you have said in the scripture we are rightly able to call Abba, meaning Father. And I pray, Lord, that you will stir our hearts. Grant us that faith we don't have, the repentance we don't have, that we might come to know the power of saving grace. What a thought to think that we were chosen in Christ before the creation of the world. And then in our day in history, you actually brought us into gospel preaching. We heard it. You granted us faith. The Spirit of God stirred our hearts. And we believed and came to know you. That's you drawing us into your family. Now the world may not see us as such, but the blessed truth of this text this morning is that you see us as such. So what do we care what the world thinks? They were wrong about Jesus and his identity. They're wrong about us and our identity. Because in Christ, you have brought us to the truth. Bless anyone here today struggling with the truth of the gospel. Lord, show yourself to them. Bring them to the saving power of Jesus. Grant them the repentance that turns away from sin and the faith that runs, runs, runs to Jesus with open arms and embraces him. This will be for their good. It will also be for your glory as another person, another soul, is brought into your kingdom. Thank you, dear Christ. Amen. Our closing hymn from the Brown Hymnal is 352 in the hymn, 352.
Let's stand together. Great hymn, Child of the King. Three, five, two in the brown hymn. you could sing those words with great confidence that you are a child of the of the king well tonight at six o'clock no choir but at six o'clock we meet downstairs for our continued study of the gospel of john in the morning we're studying the epistles of john and evening we're studying the gospel of john and we're right at the point in the study where we're dealing with the final instructions jesus gave to his disciples the night of his betrayal and crucifixion. These are great studies. You get your chance to ask your questions, and so come out. We uh, will meet at 6. We meet in the basement. We bring finger foods. 
and enjoy fellowship in food and teaching of the Word of God. So we're dismissed. Yeah. That is true. Get that out in your, among your friends. Will we meet right here in the auditorium?